Hello, everyone. Welcome to the I Don't Get It podcast. We are down a man today. Naz has laryngitis, and Ashley is over here. Pretty much down. I'm pretty much down, everyone. Okay, so we have recruited Hunter to talk about. Ashley's here, but she is, you know, not feeling her best as she's been posting all over social media if you follow her anywhere. So she will be contributing as much as she can. But we have Hunter here. He's going to help us kind of discuss certain like house uh, buying, flipping, mortgages, all of like that really fun stuff. This episode is called, this episode is called House Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Very very funny. So we have questions from you guys for Hunter about owning a house and all the steps to doing that. So we're going to kind of uh, rattle them off and have Hunter ask, I mean, answer some of these questions. So let me get these up. I have one to start. Okay. So they think they say that like your mortgage slash rent should be one fourth of your monthly income. Is this correct? I've actually never heard that. <laughs> um, as far as your monthly, I mean, you know, that's obviously something your lender can tell you. Whatever you're, you can afford, that's something that they'll definitely run down and, and break down for you. Um, something that I always kind of kept in mind was, you know, always have at least 10 to 15% of your house is worth in liquidity. So, you know, if you own a million dollar house, you should definitely have at least a hundred thousand dollars in liquid asset or liquid uh, in cash or whatever. So if something happens, if a water heater roof, if you need repairs, you know, it's a very comfortable, safe kind of war chest to have if anything happens. But as far as the one fourth, I, I feel like I have heard that maybe. Um, but I don't know. It just doesn't come up in, what I've been doing, I guess. Okay, so I feel like this is a common question. When can we expect buying a home to be normal again without the outbids and lack of homes on the market in general? So as we all know, due to COVID, everyone wants to move into homes, not apartments. So people are just rushing to these homes with like yards and more space and stuff. So the people are being outbid all the time. So these people want to know when this is going to end so you can buy a house for like a normal price. <laughs> Very good question. Um, there's no real answer to that. I mean, yeah, with COVID that happened, everyone that lived in an apartment went stir crazy. They tweaked out after being in a thousand square feet for a year. Um, you know, if you lived in DC or New York or a city and you know, you're living in a shoebox, but obviously you paid top dollar because the walkability of things were there. When the walkability left, and then when you went stir crazy, everyone wanted to get out of that. So people really kind of reprioritized having a yard, having a pool. So that's why the single family housing market absolutely skyrocketed, you know, went insane. Uh, and then to top that off, the mortgage rates dropped like crazy. Why you know. did that happen? Why does mortgage, Why do mortgage rates drop? So why do the mortgage rates mortgage rates drop? Um, you know, I'm not a lender, so I don't have a perfect answer for this, but my insight on it would be kind of similar to, to 08 and 09 when the market crashed. You know, a lot of people lost a lot of money. 
So not a lot of people had the capital to come in and start buying homes, you know, revitalize the market, really stimulate the market and get things moving again. So the way to kind of counteract that is all these lending companies will drop their mortgage rates because, you know, when our parents were buying houses, the mortgage rates were like 10 to 12%. When it dropped under 10% and got into single digits, people were throwing parties and having a field day. Can I ask one more question? As someone who, like, for maybe, maybe people out there who don't understand everything, and I don't understand everything either, the 10% means you owe the bank 10% more. Is that what it means? The interest, yeah. The interest. So it's 10% interest. Correct. Okay, got it. Yeah. So, like, for example. So if you bought your house at, like, $1 million, then if the mortgage rate is, like, 10%, then you would end up having to pay $1.1 million? Good job. Good math. <laughs> Very good. Good math. <laughs> that is correct. And then, but the way they do it is, you know, if you have a, so my mortgage right now in my house, I have a 30-year fixed mortgage, which means I have 30 years to pay off the entire balance of the loan and the principal, or the, the principal and the interest. So, but the way they do it is because you space it out for 30 years, you know, if you buy a house for a million dollars today, in 30 years, there's no way that you're going to sell your house for a million. You're easily going to sell it for, you know, one, five or $2 million, depending on what market you're in. So like, yes, you are going to, you know, the bank has to make money. So you got, they have to make interest on the loan. But if it's a 30 year loan, and even though not a lot of people, you know, own the house for the entirety of the 30 years, but let's just say in hindsight, if you do own it for 30 years, you're going to be able to sell your house for a much, much higher number. So even though you're going to be paying them, the bank, $100,000, at the end of the day, you're still going to make a large, large profit. I mean, so when it when it's officially going to go back to normal, I guess, I mean, that's such, like, I, I don't know. We like to tell our clients we don't have a crystal ball. We can never really know the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. I feel like at least in the DMV, the market has slowed down a little bit. You know, four months ago we had... 22 listings with our name on it and we sold a lot of them and now we have seven listings with our name on it it was great but now i feel like things are slowing down a little bit right now i mean it's still a little crazy but you know this can't last forever so six six months can you explain what happened in 2008 2009 um like the bubble bursting because i mean i saw the big short and I'm still very confused, as if that movie was going to help me at all. When we were uh, graduating. <laughs> or no, right? when we were seniors in high school. Yeah, graduating high school. Uh, yeah, my two cents on that is basically banks were giving out loans to unqualified people. And they were giving out multiple, multiple loans to one individual. So one person was taking out multiple loans to buy three or four houses at one time. And, you know, they weren't verifying their income, weren't verifying their assets. So all these people who had four or five loans, you know, at, in six months, a year, two years, they were defaulting on a lot of their payments because they were defaulting on the payments and some of these houses were vacant and people couldn't upkeep them. The value of the houses started to drop like crazy. So when people default on their homes, it reverts back to the bank and the bank, they want to sell it quickly, get it off their books so that they can have a cash flow come back into them. 
But even when you do that, the bank is going to lose a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever delta it is for whatever price range. So all of these homes and loans that people owned and the loans that were giving or that people were getting, they couldn't afford it anymore. So so many people defaulted. All of this money that the bank promised the people, it literally all just disappeared. So like there's just a mass shortage. Okay, so that was like the top of the bubble, right? So like everybody talks about the top of the bubble. So if that was at the top of the bubble then, now here we are like what, 12, 13, oh my God, 12 years later. That's so crazy. Um, And people are saying we're at the top of the bubble again, but it's not going to be like the same kind of bubble because people aren't getting loans that they don't really deserve or qualify for. I don't think it's going to be as aggressive or you know, extensive as it was in 08, 09. Um, you know, I definitely think there's going to be a market correction, whether it's in six months or 12 months. Um, I, I just, I don't know, but I definitely think it's going to come. I, I'm hoping it's not as drastic, um, but, you know, because inventory is so short and because there was such a, just a new incentive for the single family home. That's I think what's been crazy with the prices going up because there's been such low quality inventory. And like a lot of the buyers these days, technology out there, the ability to, you know, see everything on the market. People want new, they want turnkey, they don't want to do a project. So when they see something ready to go and they see it online, you know, they can be there the next day ready to go buy it. So the quality inventory is going in two seconds. And then because people don't want to do a project, you know, an old, older home that needs updating, uh, that's not going to sell the same price and it's not going to go, you know, nearly as quick as, as something ready to go. So that's slowing a lot of the uh, kind of the older undated homes or outdated homes. All right. Well, I know this is something that Hunter really likes and it has nothing to do with housing. It is Coors Pure. It is a organic beer, which I think is super cool. It has zero sugars and it's sugars. It has zero sugar and it's only 92 calories and it's really crisp and refreshing. I know this because I used to drink it before I was pregnant. (laughs) Um, And it is, it's great because it's a simple beer. All there is in it is organic barley, organic hops and water. Um, so we like to say this, it's coarse pure, it's organic, but it's chill about it. It's not a pretentious beer, you know? You don't want like a, a pretentious, stupid beer and you just want to feel light and skinny. You don't want to feel full after drinking it. So coarse pure is perfect, whether you're on the, on the ICA playing hockey, playing hockey or out pl- or playing golf or anything. Golf with the boys. So if you guys want to try coarse pure, go to coursepure.com slash get it to see where you can find coarse pure. Coarse pure is the perfect beer to celebrate the wins of everyday life. So when you want to enjoy a beer while without the guilt, reach for coarse pure. Pure, it's organic, but chill about it. And again, that's coursepure.com slash get it. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Albany, Georgia. Well, kind of going on this, uh, there is Sam Ross on our Facebook group. He specifically wants to know, he says his home's value has increased four times since buying it in 2011. He's in the Seattle area. Are we in a housing bubble or whatever? Will his home's value collapse soon? So basically, I think what he's asking is, it's increased four times. Should he just sell it right now? Uh, if I were him, I mean, depending on his family circumstances and whatnot, there's kind of a lot of variables there. But 
in terms of price alone, I think he should absolutely sell. But if he's going to sell, he shouldn't rebuy in the same area because he's going to take those proceeds and those profits and everything, and he's just going to turn it back into another property of equal value, same size and everything. And then, you know, let's say this bubble does hit in 6 to 12 months. Instead of taking that, you know, 4x profit that he made Mm -hmm. and using it to, you know, reinvest and try to get another 4x profit down the road, he's probably going to lose that. So I would sell immediately right now if he has the ability to find a rental for, you know, a year or two years. So that way he can make those profits, make those proceeds, you know, take whatever money you got, you know, put it in the stock market, put it in, find some distressed homes uh, in the area. My Actually, my cousin who sells energy for Seattle, he used to flip and sell like 10 properties a month and find $200,000 homes flip them, sell them for three, three hundred fifty. So if he can take those proceeds and find some distressed homes, that's a really good way to turn over those monies and, and make some extra profit. But I think you should definitely sell, maybe rent for a year or two, see if there's a correction because you don't want to miss out on this bubble. Okay. When you, okay, so you're suggesting somebody to rent now. Some realtors are like, and you know, you, you never know because they're trying to sell you a house, but they're like, never rent, never rent. When do you suggest to rent? In only in times like this where you're waiting for the quote bubble to burst? Yeah, that's, that's such a, that's a double-edged sword on that question. It's a very good question. Because renting, I mean, the way I look at renting is you're taking your hard-earned money and you're literally just throwing it into a trash can. You're not building any equity. You get no appreciation. You get no value. All you, for millennials, they love to rent because they love not being tied down. They love to run around. You know, they want to be free to, you know, if they want to go live in New York for a year, if their job says, oh, we have an opening in LA, or one of my buddies is about to move to London because they had a job opening in London. And if you're going to be stable and you're going to be in a bought for a while i definitely think you should buy um you know obviously maybe not right now because prices are crazy but and then the, so the way so yeah so renting you're taking money throwing in a trash can the way i look at buying and owning is okay if you're renting for two thousand a month you're losing two grand a month if you can find a place where your mortgage is two thousand a month you're literally just taking money out of your savings account and you're putting it into an equity account which is your house so let's say in five years down the road, you've built up $50,000 or $100,000 or whatever in equity. You know, if you want to start reinvesting that money, all you do is go to the bank. Instead of getting a, another extra loan from the bank, you just take equity out of your house because it's your own you know, hard-earned money. So you're just moving money from your checking account or savings account into an equity account as opposed to taking money and throwing it into a trash can and never seeing it again. So it's, you know, if you're in a stable situation in your life where you can or you're going to know you're going to be settled down in an area for a while, definitely buy. Because even if, let's say, you do move in five years, you don't hold on to the property and rent it out because then you have somebody covering your mortgage and your carrying costs, but you're still building equity in the, uh, in the property that you own. So you're making money two different ways. Um. Okay, so I, I, you know what is so annoying about rent? Uh, well, actually, no, it's not rent. Sorry, this is a pregnancy moment. Um, okay, 
I think of property taxes as like this ongoing rent that nobody thinks of because like you pay for your mortgage, but then on top of it, you're always going to have to pay this, like the property tax every single year. And that's like, that feels like a big waste of money (laughs) because like, even if you pay off your, your mortgage, like say after 30 years, you're still never free of paying for where you live. Very, very true. And that's where it comes into play in what state you live in, (laughs) which is always a huge topic of discussion. You know, places like California, for example, property taxes there are crazy through the roof. In, uh, In Maryland, they just passed a new law, a new tax law, where it's made it much more difficult to sell because the taxes and everything on the back end of that are way higher than they used to be. Um, I mean, but there's also some give and takes. Like in, in Virginia, the this could be reversed, but it's the property tax is lower, but the income tax is higher, and then vice versa in each one. At the end of the day, it kind of evens out. But, you know, like I, I still think, for example, my I bought my house for 900000 My property taxes are $10,000 a year. So, you know, yes, that... I do have that extra $10,000 to pay at the end of the year. But at the end of the day, you know, because of this bubble too, I could sell for one, two or one, three. So, you know, in three years, four years, that's $40,000 in taxes. So that's $400,000 in gains because of appreciation. So, you know, it's always going to be risk reward, but you just got to find the right spot. I remember what I was going to say previously before I went into property tax. You just like have to think about your house as like another bank account. It's like your house bank account because that makes you feel so much better when you're so scared about like the price tag on the house. If you're just like, okay, you're you're still keeping that money. It's still like your money. You're just putting it in, in somewhere else where it's like not like you don't see the dollar signs in the bank, but like it's still physical. So people want to know what are incentives for first time home buyers and also i kind of want to know how much do you think you should put down when because yeah a two thousand dollar mortgage and two thousand dollar rent like sounds great but how much do you put down for that okay so the best way to, to go about that is definitely talk to a lender because they will based on your income and your credit score they'll tell you the max of what you can afford and what your monthly payments would be and the whole nine yards so if you really want to get a, a fine, definite answer, definitely find a really reputable lender that you're comfortable with and that can really, and they, they're very good at it, but they'll break down the numbers for you very easily. Um, but traditionally, everyone always thought 20% of your loan is what you need to put down. I always like to think, you know, the more you can put down, the better, because then you're, one, you're going to have a, low monthly, a lower monthly rate, you can pay off your loan quicker, um, and then for but for first time home buyers, actually back to the oh eight oh nine um, after the market crashed and everything, to along with the low um, mortgage rates to re incentivize everyone to start buying again, especially new home buyers. They do a lot of first time home buyer uh, plans, incentives, and just kind of things to help people get back into the market where. Um, you know, they used to require 20%. It was, if you don't have 20%, you know, get a smaller loan, find a smaller house, is what it is, tough luck. 
but they started dropping things like in dc for example they have a thing called uh i think it's called the open door policy or something like that where you can put anywhere from three to five percent down so instead of putting the full 20 percent and then you know capping your max purchase price at five hundred thousand you can do a three or five percent down and then you can buy something in the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar range so they'll give you a smaller uh down payment of three to five so that you can purchase higher just to kind of revitalize everything in the market and whatnot but you know it used to be 20 now you can do a lot less um but you know if you still need to have a decent chunk of change in the bank you know if again if anything happens to the house i, I still like to think to have at least 10 to 15 percent liquidity of whatever your home's worth just so you can make sure you're safe and not you know you don't want to be house poor you don't want to buy the house move in and find out you need a new fridge and you're like well shit do i get food tonight or do i buy a new fridge so make sure you're safe Okay, so has this ever happened to you? You need to see a doctor, and you search, and you find one that looks good, and you wait on hold when you're trying to book an appointment on the phone, you, you rearrange your schedule, and you finally go in only to find out this doctor doesn't take your insurance. You guys, this has happened to me once. Oh, my goodness. I got in there, and the girl at the counter was just like, just letting you know we're out of market. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> and she's like, that means that your appointment today is going to be a minimum of $1,000. I was like, oh my gosh. So anyway, you can avoid this awkward situation by downloading the free ZocDoc app. That is Z-O-C-D-O-C. And it's the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, book an appointment in person or via video chat, and you never have to wait online for a receptionist again. ZocDoc really just makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash get it and download the ZocDoc app to sign up free and book a top rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. Again, that's ZocDoc.com slash get it. My dad like doesn't, he like likes loans and, and he doesn't like paying things off. And that, not in the way that he likes to keep all of his money invested. So, like, the more he can keep invested, the better. So, when you say um, 20%, that way, like, you put 20% down, and that way you're just like feeling like you're paying it off faster. Is it, but then in less money every month, but like, what about the theory that you should put less in it and then keep it in the stock market and such? so that you're saving that money and growing it over time. I I like to look at the housing markets, you know, similar-ish to the stock market in the sense that, number one, it's incredibly unpredictable. You know, anything can happen. We've seen ups and downs in both markets, you know, recently in the past. So it's the the volatility of both are definitely there. I like to think that the housing market is a, bit more stable you know that's why when you you you'll hear these guys who are worth you know a billion dollars and they'll buy you know 10 properties in a year because uh instead of having you know a hundred million dollars in their bank account or in you know you could put it in stocks and bonds and whatnot but they want to have it in a tangible asset 
So that's where a lot of these guys will shelter a lot of their money because they'll they'll put it in homes or they'll buy lots or pieces of land wherever where they know that the value will always be there. Um, so I, you know, I think, and to the point of putting more down on, on the mortgage, you know, that just means at the end of the day when you go to sell your house too. Uh, to what you were saying, you know, if back when interest rates were ten percent, so if you know if you did a, a million dollar loan, ten percent is a hundred grand. If you could put five hundred thousand down, ten percent of a five hundred thousand dollar loan is fifty thousand. So that's another incentive where the more you put down, the less you're paying on the back end. So that also when you go to sell your house, you know, hope, let's hope it appreciates and you can cover all the expenses and, and the costs and whatnot. But then you're going to make more and save more on the back end too. When is it a good idea to refinance? Oh, and what is refinancing? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of people are, yeah, when I was reading the question, someone said, you know, when you can get at least 1% less. Um, you know, so when I bought my house about four or five years ago, I got my mortgage rate at 3.2. And in the last, you know, four years, rates have been dropping like crazy. I refinanced last year to 2.8. So, you know, less interest then. Exactly. Very good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm paying less interest on it. So I pay the bank less back at the end of the day. Um, you know, if, if you had a, an interest rate at, at three and it went down to three point or went down to two, nine, eight, you know, you don't, that's not worth it at all. It seems pointless because you're going to have to pay the title company to do all the paperwork and whatnot. And that's just not enough savings at the end of the day to really go through all of that. And then especially because, you know, let's say it drops another two points again, you know, no one wants to keep going through the process. Um, but, you know, I think if it drops at least a quarter of a percent, I think, you know, whenever you can get the lower rate, especially if you think you're going to be in the house for long term, I, th- I mean, I think it's always wise to refinance. I don't think a 1% is an absolute cutoff. You know, I I went from 325 to 285 and I, you know, I'm dropped like 3 or $400 on my monthly payment, so... So a refinancing, does that mean that, like, you have to end up paying more than 30 years, basically? If you, like, had a 30-year-old fixed mortgage, does it kind of change the amount of years you're going to have to pay? Uh, no. So it's still going to be a 30-year. Um, it just changed the – or I'm, I'm almost positive. I might be wrong, but I'm. it's pretty sure it's just you, just the rate. You still keep the 30-year loan. Um, I mean, and there's a lot of different loans you can get. Like, you can get a – a 10-year arm or 7-1 or you can get a jumbo loan um, but typically they they keep the duration of the time but they just change the percentage it sounds like that should be like not legal or are you think the banks would not allow refinancing like you got what you got and now just stick with it you know um okay so we have so many more questions how do we go through this all um okay Hold on. I want to get into the flipping of houses. I don't know if you know a lot about flipping houses, but there was a lot of questions about flipping houses. How do you, like, start flipping houses? And if you're buying a flipped house, is there anything you should look for, like like a shitty first-timer flip or something? Are there any tall tale signs of, like, what not to buy? Uh, so for flipping houses, you know, first thing you want to do is definitely find a good market, like a good real estate market that actually can sustain some good mar- or property values. Cause you know, if you buy a dirt cheap house and for, I don't know, 
let's say you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars and then you put 50 grand back into it you know if your neighbors are only selling for 125 even though you put another 50 into it like that was stupid what the hell are you doing what's the point so you definitely want to find a market that's active, fluid, and that can actually, you know, hold the property values, you know, to give you an actual incentive to to buy and sell and that people are actually in. Um, the first thing you de- – or the second thing you definitely want to do is find a distressed house. You know, you'll find them out there. You just got to keep your kind of finger on the pulse in the market. Um, you know, there are people that will – buy a house put really crappy additions into it or really bad fixtures or bad materials back into the home um but that's something that your your realtor or you know if if you're a first time home buyer going in to buy make sure you have a really good home inspector who can who can tell you that like yeah these people just put lipstick on a pig and this house is actually a piece of shit but they're just trying to play it off so that that's something that your your realtor you find a knowledgeable realtor or, and make sure that they have really good references for a good home inspector because they will you know I mean they'll they'll find everything for you just to make sure you're safe. Um. So like if someone wants to flip a house, they should be like pretty settled in their own like mortgage in their own house, right? And then they would buy a second property to flip. Yeah, definitely. I. If you're going to flip a house, I would definitely suggest owning a house first because when you're a homeowner, I mean, not to keep bringing up me, but <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, first time or, yeah, you know, I, I went through it, <laughs> so I I can speak to it pretty well. Um, like when I bought my house, I had to get a new roof, a new water heater, a new HVAC, or we did the floors, um, you know, so going into it, you're going to know what to look for, especially if you've lived in a house, owned a house. As far as aesthetics goes, um, what do you see as like the current and then what do you see as the future? Like we all look, we all can like eyeball 90s houses. Um, You know, they have darker wood. Um, They're just like a little bit more extra. You know, there's like gold and more brass and la la la. Um, And then like the current the col- columns, I mean, Lauren says, um, then there's skirt, then there's like a lot of crown molding too. Is like, is what's current and then what do you think is going to, like, what's going to be outdated before we know it because the future is on the horizon? <laughs> Does this make sense? <laughs> You're funny. Yeah, for, from all the houses I've been in, especially recently i mean the the current is everything must be white you know white countertops with the waterfall ledge you got to have the big old farm sink um you know it's brushed nickel stainless steel cabinets got to be white got a sub-zero fridge um you know everyone's the open floor plan yeah but in 90s early 2000s it was the dark wood it was green marble um yeah but now it's definitely white with a little you know gray veins going through everything but recently i've definitely seen a lot more of kind of darker darker uh colors on cabinets um you know we've seen a lot of people are going to like a dark dark gray on the kitchen island and then a little bit lighter cabinets but gold's making a big comeback right now 
uh, a lot of the hardware appliances um, and bathrooms, like gold's definitely coming back. We've actually a builder that we work closely with. He's been doing a lot of uh, like dark, dark navy blue uh, cabinetry, kitchen island, still dark or a dark gray, really polished gold all throughout. Um, flooring wise, we're seeing a lot of white, white oak, white wood. Everyone's really getting away from the dark wood these days because it just, I don't know, it looks heavy, kind of I don't know, shuts the rooms down a little bit. You know, in, in the eighties and nineties, everyone wanted segmented homes you know like this was the kitchen this was the living room this is the dining room and you can tell because there's can't fucking see anything else (laughs) as as opposed to now where you know everything's got to be open you know if you can't see from one side of the house to the other like you know a lot of especially millennials who want to buy because they love all this open like they they just don't want it anymore but i think moving forward i think you're gonna see a lot more gold some kind of darker like darker navy blue, just kind of, I don't know, sharper colors, I guess. All right, we're going to take one quick break to talk about BetterHelp, one of our favorite sponsors. Uh, If you guys are looking for any kind of therapy, I would suggest trying BetterHelp because it is so quick and easy and convenient. And if you're having a rough day, you can start talking with a therapist as soon as 24 hours. It's really nice to have the text, uh, texting, uh, capabilities so you don't have to talk in front of your family talk in front of your boyfriend talk in front of someone you're embarrassed to to talk about in front of and you can have the privacy of texting and you can also have phone calls facetimes with a licensed therapist they deal with a broad range of expertise they have a broad range of expertise um, which may not always be locally available in the area that you live in so these professional licensed counselors are specializing in depression stress anxiety relationships sleeping trauma anger family conflicts lgbt matters grief and self-esteem and everything that you share is confidential it's also convenient professional and affordable and so many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So we want you guys to start living a happier life today. And as a listener of the I Don't Get It podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash get it. So join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash get it. Is there anything that's timeless? Oh, what is timeless? Um, I kind of, I kind of, th- honestly, I think like even back, back to the flipping, like you can find some good white countertops with some, some gray vein, grain inlay. And I, I think that will last for a while, even if it does get a little outdated, like, like change the cabinets or change the knobs or something as long as like your granite is white or whatever the hell it is uh yeah you can change around that um uh okay so speaking of i guess building what are pros and cons of buying nowadays versus building a house and here we go ashley in in hunter ding ding (laughs) i didn't submit this question but it's also not a question i have because i'm building uh, so, well, right now, building, I think, is a horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I mean, number one, because materials are price-wise, they are through the roof. Like the cost of wood is uh, like double, if not more expensive than it used to be um, because of COVID. And not the also because it's double, but everything has been <clears throat> delayed and resources are very scarce right now because of COVID. You know, whether it was the mill shutting down because they had to or workers not wanting to uh, going, you know, to the mills because they're scared of COVID and whatnot and blah, blah, blah. Um, so number one, materials and everything are like double what they normally would be. Number two, if you were going to build, it's going to take you twice as long because everything's delayed because of COVID. Uh, number three, it's everything looks great on paper and you know your your designer your contractor uh your architect he can he can show you everything and show you examples you're never fully gonna know what you get until you actually see it so you know you think you're gonna get the perfect home and then a couple things might not be what you thought it'll kind of tweak you out a little bit um and then I, I also think, I mean, especially for a first time, I, I think it's just, again, I think it's good to live in a house for a while, see what you like, because to what, actually to what we were saying of what's current now and what's going to be current later, you know, let's say you went with, you know, the current package of Susie homeowner from her first time homebuyer, you know, it, it'll take you two and a half years to build or a year or however long. But then, you know, what if something new comes in? So you're like, shit, I wish I had this new designer who came out and blah, blah, blah. So I think I think it's good to see a bunch of homes, see what you like, you know, live in a home that that's conducive to your lifestyle, you know, because what you thought was important a year and a half ago, you know, especially for you, actually, perfect example, if if you're looking at a home, you know, maybe you think one thing's better than the other, you need a bigger kitchen or a living room, but then, you know, when the child comes and everything and you actually start living your day-to-day, you're going to start reprioritizing, you know, do you want the bigger kitchen or do you want the bigger nursery or X, Y, Z? So I think it's good to find a home, figure out what you like, and then perhaps move from there. Uh, One other question that involves this is how the heck do people afford to buy the plot of land and then afford to build? Like, that's just so much rather than just paying for it all at once. You're still paying for it all at once when you buy a house because you're still buying the land. It's included in the price. That's very true. (laughs) But also, I just read the question. (laughs) Uh, yeah, Ashley is pretty spot on on that. It, uh, I mean, the way builders do it is they like to, I mean, this is a very kind of old concept, but builders like to do it as a, a rule of thirds where you spend one third of the money on the piece of land. You spend one third of the money building the house and then you have to sell the property to make one third, uh, on the back end. So, you know, if you buy a million dollar piece of land, you need to spend a million dollars to build the house so you can sell it for three million. Um, how do you get the money for that? I mean, that <laughs> sounds like something uh, you just have to have the money for it and just know what you're getting into, I guess. Uh, this uh, Amanda asks, how do normal people compete in a cash market? So like paying full cash, is that really a 
game changer for a seller or for an agent? That's a very good question because everyone, I can't tell you how many times we've had houses on the market and, you know, let's say it's a million dollar house and someone's like, all right, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give you 850 right now and it's going to be all cash and we'll close in two weeks. And we're like, absolutely not. That's stupid. We're great. You have cash and you can do that. But if you can afford 850 in cash, you can definitely afford a million. And then two, just because it's cash, the, you know, we're, we can still find someone who can pay 950 and get a loan. We don't care where the money's coming from as long as the money comes in. So if somebody comes in and says, you know, we'll give you full price a million dollars, but we're going to get a loan, but they have a pre-approval letter, they show us proof of funds, you know, they're reputable and we have no reason to doubt that everything will go through, then why the hell would we not take a million dollars? You know, we're just, instead of getting it in cash, you know, in two days from somebody's checking account, we're getting it from a bank in 30 days. So it's such a misconception and it's BS. Like cash is great, but you know, we'll, we're going to take more money. Obviously we don't care where it comes from as long as the money comes in. Very interesting. Um, Callie goes, what the heck does escrow mean? And that's so funny. I, I hear that word all the time. And I think, Hunter explained it to me one time, and I I vaguely remember what it means, but just give us a definition of escrow. Yes, the escrow. So the EMD, the earnest money deposit. <laughs> so when you, when you buy a house, basically the escrow is your promise as a buyer. The escrow is your promise to the seller that you are going to actually follow through with everything and buy the house. So... You know, let's say you buy a house for a million dollars and you put a thousand dollar escrow down, which means you're basically you're only promising the bot or the seller that you know I'll put a thousand dollars that says no matter what happens I'm actually going to buy this house. So they could go through the home inspection, it could be spotless, they can have their loan approved, everything's fine, all their contingencies expired. So the only thing left to do is sign the final paperwork. And then let's say on the day of closing, the buyers come in and they're just like, actually, on second thought, I really don't like your home. And this other one came on the market. So big middle finger, we're going to go buy this other house. By them not going to the settlement table, you only get $1,000 because they defaulted on signing and buying your home. And the only reparations that the seller has is $1,000. So they took their house off the market for 30 days when there could have been other buyers coming in to get it. They lost that time. They can never get it back on the market. And the only promise that they had from the buyers is that little $1,000. Okay, so can it be more than $1,000? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) That that was example one. (laughs) So that's why, yeah, whenever, as a listing agent, we always, always, always want to get the biggest escrow that we can. And how do you determine that? Uh, so it's it di- it's different in states. So like in in DC, it's it's almost mandatory that it's about ten percent of the home's value. So if you're buying a million dollar house in DC, you have a hundred thousand dollar escrow or promise from the buyer to the seller that I will buy your house. So if they go through everything and they come to settlement, you know, there's no way a buyer is just going to be like, actually, I don't want to buy this house anymore because they're going to lose a hundred grand. 
So that's why escrows are, they can be very powerful when putting an offer in. So let's say, you know, let's say the house is a million dollars and we get an offer for one, one qualified buyer, but they have a $5,000 escrow, but we get another person come in. They're like, you know, we can't afford a million, but we'll give you nine fifty. but we'll put $150,000 escrow down because we love the house. We really want it. You know, no matter what, like they're committed so that $150,000 escrow buyer, like that is way more attractive, way more powerful than someone who just, you know, seems to be flaunting but not serious about it. But that, that escrow goes to the price of your house. Yes. Yeah. So when the buyer goes to settlement, signs all the final, paper, final paperwork, that $150,000 rolls over into the closing costs for the buyer and then also like the down payment of their loan. So it's not like an extra... $150,000 that you have to include to buying the house. You put that that money into escrow and then when you sign the final paperwork, it just goes from the escrow account that's held by the title company, just a third party holding the money. And the third party takes that money and it's like, "Okay, we'll give it back over to the others." What if you're in escrow and you're getting the house checked out and then you realize the house is like in really bad shape? Very good question. So, yeah. So if you're doing, uh, so when the money's in escrow, so as a buyer, you're always protected to be able to get that money back, but only inside your contingency periods. So like, let's say you have a 10 from the day of settlement, or sorry, the day of ratification. So when everyone agrees and signs the first initial contract, the meeting of the minds, uh, Typically, you'll have like a seven or 10 day uh, time frame to do a home inspection. And then like a 21 day, which is usually the minimum for a financing contingency to get your loan approved and whatnot. So in the 10 days when you sign and you have the home inspection, you know, if, if the inspector comes in and says, dude, the foundation's cracked, there's mold, there's rats, there's this, there's that, the ceiling's leaking, X, Y, Z, you can go back to the sellers and say, guys, like, this is horrible. Like, unless you either, one, fix everything by, a, you know, a licensed contractor, show us proof that everything is fixed, or you can give us, you know, an extra $100,000 because that's what we think it's going to cost to fix everything. We're not buying your house. And then let's say the sellers just say, like, no, we don't want to do this deal. Hell no, blah, 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 take it or leave it you can go back and just void your contract, go to the settlement company and say, look, we were going to buy this house. We know we have the escrow in there, but you know the home inspection came back shit. We don't want to buy the house anymore. You're legally allowed to do that. So then you get that money back. So you're always protected to get that money back. So the only way you lose it is if you know the home inspection goes through, you guys, everything's good. You get your loan approved. Everything's fine. And then you just randomly decide not to sign the final paperwork and kind of dick the seller over. All right. I think we have two to three questions left. And one person wants to know what's like the number one thing to look for in a home inspection. Like what is the one thing that usually gets fucked? Um, God, I've, I've seen a lot of horror stories. Um, I think a good thing to start this question off with is you're going to get a packet of like 
30 to 60 pages. Don't let that alarm you because it's going to happen no matter what. Like we've sold brand new construction homes, whether they're 4,000 square feet or 12,000 square feet. And even the brand, brand, brand new reputable builder construction homes, you're still going to get, you know, a 20 to 50 page report back. You know, there's going to be a lot of little things in there, you know, because the inspector, if the kitchen cabinet has a knob that's loose or the screw isn't tight enough, they're going to take a picture and put it in the report. So, you know, sift through all the small BS. I think the biggest things are kind of the guts of the home. You know, you want to make sure that your HVAC system is, you know, relatively new. Uh you know, being in real estate, it's not just selling homes. You wear a lot of hats. You know, I, I know an HVAC system can have a 12 to 15 year life or a water heater can have a 12 to 15 year life or a roof, an asphalt roof can be a 25 year life. Make sure, you know, the ages of all the systems, ages of the roof, you know, I would highly suggest getting a mold test. It's very easy to do. It's inexpensive to add. Um, you know, just uh, I think those are the biggest things. I mean, every house is going to have its blemishes. You know, f- the family lived there. They enjoyed their home. They had dogs. The floors are scratched. It's called home ownership. So, you know, pull your pans up and deal with it. But the biggest things are definitely, you know, the guts and interior of the home. Make sure the roof is good. Make sure all the systems, if they're not, even if they're not new, make sure they've been serviced. Make sure they're working properly. Because depending on the size of the home, you know, you could spend twenty five grand before you walk in the front door getting a new HVAC system or or compressor and whatnot. That's last two questions. What is okay? What's what are closing costs like? What are you paying for during closing? Closing costs are so silly and annoying and stupid, but they're. <laughs> Everyone's got to deal with it. It's, I mean, so think about it. When you buy a home, you know, someone has to, number one, take the the name of the owner out of the county office. You know, you can, they have to get it uh, registered with the county. They have to go down to the courts. Someone's got to take the current owner's name off of the deed and title. Someone's got to pay for that. Someone has to pay for that paperwork to go down to the courthouse. Someone has to pay to get the new name put on the deed and title and then pay for that to go down to the courthouse and then pay for that to get registered with the court system and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, when you go to the title company, obviously they want to make money too. So they're going to be like, okay, well, it's it's $200 for me to change the name on the deed or title. It's another 250 for me to register with the courts. It's another 300 for me to take their name off it. And then that snowballs. But then they're like, okay, so that's, you know, $1,500 worth of BS that the courts are charging us. So we're going to charge you that 1500 But then we're going to charge you another, you know, 1500 because we want to make money because we're doing all this BS. Okay. So that's basically what the closing costs are. I mean, that was a very crude and vague example of it, but to go through <laughs> what they are line by line, we'd be here for days. Okay. On a related note, Jared and I were so confused when we were looking at starter homes. It's like, we knew we are, we we're going to have to pay for closing costs, but then 
do we have to pay the realtor? Like, when do you pay the realtor? Does just the person who's selling their house pay the realtor? Please explain. Because there's a there's a listing realtor, and then there's the realtor that takes you around to look at houses. This should have been the number one question. The first question before we got into this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I get this question a lot. Very good question. So if if you're buying a home, always, always, always get a realtor. A lot of people will go in and think like, as as a buyer, they'll be like, oh, if I don't use a realtor, that means I don't have to pay them, which means I can save some money on the purchase price and blah, blah, blah. Whoever is selling the home, whoever has the home listed, they are the ones that pay out the commission to the real estate agents. So typically a normal transaction, it's going to be 6%. So million dollar home, you get 6%, $60,000. goes to the listing agent, the person listing the house, and then the other 3% goes to the buyer's agent. So as a buyer, if you don't get an agent, you're basically giving up free professional advice because as a buyer, you're never paying the agent unless you have something written in your buyer agency agreement, which rarely basically never happens. You're you're literally giving up free professional advice by not getting an agent because the seller always, always, always pays the agents. So, and a lot of buyers think that, you know, okay, so I'm going to go in there without a buyer's agent and then the seller doesn't have to pay that 3% to the buyer's agent. Well, a lot of times the selling agent, the listing agent will just take that entire 6% commission. So the buyer's going to go in there being like, oh, but I don't have an agent and, you know, I'm not, you're not going to pay out an extra 3%. But in reality, you know, if they're not paying out the 6%, they probably have a deal with the agent that they're paying out 5% or 4.5%. But then also at the end of the day, you know, that's $12,000, which, yeah, fifteen grand is a lot of money. But when you're dealing with, you know, a million-dollar house, twelve grand at the end of the day is not that big a deal. And, you know, obviously the numbers will change with whatever price point you're at. But it's always, always, always get a, a an agent as a buyer because, number one, you're giving up free advice. Number two, when you go in there and you only use the agent for the uh, the sellers, you know, the sellers are obligated to help out the sellers. So, you know, they'll be nice and they'll put a smile on their face and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll write up the paperwork for you. It'll be fine. You know, I'll give you some, like, tell you what to do here and there. They don't care. They're helping out the sellers. So you think you're getting help, but they're always, you know, they're contractually obligated to help out their client and you're not their client. So you're giving up free advice. You could be getting taken advantage of and you're really not saving any money on the back end because... a lot of the times the listing agent will just take the entire commission or, you know, a good portion of it. What's the difference between a broker and a real estate agent? Because if you watch million dollar listing, it gets really confusing. Yeah. Those, those terms get interchanged all the time. Um, I mean like a, a brokerage is like, I, I hang my license with compass real estate. So they are my broker. I'm technically a real estate agent, but they are my broker. So, like, I I could be a broker and an agent. It's easy, not difficult to do, just, you know, an extra test, a little extra licensing. But from what I understand, (laughs) the biggest difference is a salesperson or a sales agent 
uh, is more boots on the ground as opposed to the broker is the actual company or organization. But you, it's, you can definitely be both. I think that's all the questions we have. Yeah. That was pretty extensive. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on. Wow. How's it feel to finish your first full podcast? Can't wait for my payment. <laughs> You're on salary. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Naz will be back next week, and hopefully Ashley will be feeling a little more upbeat, and we'll be back in the regular uh, programming. All right, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Don't uh, miss out on the Facebook group. It's pretty lit in there. Um, so we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. If you want to be the most interesting person at the cocktail party, well, hop on over and listen to the Brain Candy Podcast. Our award-winning content will have you laughing while you're learning. We read all the best articles, books, and studies, and keep up with new TV shows, documentaries, and pop culture. And then we cram it all into two shows a week. Conspiracy theories, cannibal rabbits, unsolved mysteries, the history of the Walkman. There's something for everyone. The Brain Candy Podcast. Find our link in the show notes. Or simply search for the Brain Candy Podcast on your podcast app. I don't get it. Podcast.